There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hello, I'm Sophie Ellis-Bexter and welcome to Spinning Plates, the podcast where I speak to busy working women who also happen to be mothers about how they make it work. I'm a singer and I've released seven albums in between having my five sons aged 16 months to 16 years, so I spin a few plates myself. Being a mother can be the most amazing thing, but it can also be hard to find time for yourself and your own ambitions. I want to be a bit nosy and see how other people balance everything. Welcome to Spinning Plates. Well, this is risky business. Oh, God, I've just realised what I've done. I thought, right, in order to record the intro to this week's podcast, I'll quickly give something to two-year-old Mickey to keep him happy while I chat. And in the big boys' rooms, we've got all these little boxes, you know, like those little kids' suitcases, and they've all got different toys inside. And I, by accident, have given him the one filled with Lego men. And I don't mean, like, a couple. I mean, like, maybe, like, 300... In a, in a little box. Um, yeah, Mickey, we can't play that game. He wants to just chuck them over the banisters. This is a disaster. Uh, I am home with all of my kids because last week two of them came down with COVID. Um, and would you believe it, it was also the week I was scheduled to talk to my guest this week, which is Dr. Catherine Green. Now, Dr. Catherine Green, she is the, one of the people on the team who developed the AstraZeneca vaccine. So I was always going to say thanks to her anyway, because it's the shot that I've had and my mum's had and um, lots of folk in my family and my friends. But also, um, yeah, now I can say thank you again, because we basically have managed to get through this virus in our house, under our roof, highly contagious virus, very, very quickly and smoothly with no one getting too ill and... Uh, Richard um, didn't didn't get it at all, which is amazing. So, anyway, so I'm a bit distracted with the blooming Lego men going down the stairs. Uh, B, 
But yes, yeah, she was so lovely. So she and uh, Dame Sarah Gilbert, uh, she who has just recently been made into a Barbie, sort of inspirational AstraZeneca Barbie. <laughs> Sorry, that's quite a funny juxtaposition, isn't it? It is funny, Mickey. Um, yes, they, they worked as part of a big team to to develop the AstraZeneca vaccine. And it's a fascinating story. And Catherine herself is a single mum. She has a 10-year-old Ellie. Uh, the, her, her colleague who wrote the book Vaxxers, Sarah, she is mother as well. She actually has triplets, but they're quite grown up now. They're just finishing uni. Um, so these are two women who know firsthand a thing or two about being spread thin and working through a pandemic with all the stuff that you have to deal with with raising a family but also knowing that your work is really important and need to get out and get it done so three cheers to them for what they've done more than cheer actually i'm actually thinking you know the damehood is right oh for goodness sake mickey what a stupid stupid thing i've done giving in this box of lego um I thought Catherine was completely lovely. I was originally going to go and meet her in person. I was going to go with my producer, Claire, to Exeter College and speak to her in person, but obviously we couldn't, so we did it on Zoom. And I must confess, parts of the recording are a tiny bit glitchy. Hopefully not too, it hasn't happened too often. My memory of it is it doesn't happen too often, but I'm just letting you know in case it's a little bit annoying but I think it's to do with internet speed and as my editor husband says it won't be RN because he's feeling very happy about our internet these days um can you put this on sure I'll go and put that on Mickey okay. anywho we have had a week at home with the kids it has been quite intense we haven't managed to get as much done as you'd like but hey sometimes you're just getting by aren't you we've definitely done lots and lots of playing and the weather's not been too bad and, uh, you know, hoovering the place can wait, can't it? It's just not that important. And I hope you guys are all okay. This, I feel I should probably say at the beginning as well, this podcast recording was not intended as some um, sort of, you have to be so careful. And basically every time I put anything online about a vaccine, I get a lot of people who feel very strongly about the vaccine, uh, not always in a positive way. So I feel I should say, you know, I didn't record this as a sort of, you must get your vaccine, although clearly you don't have to hear me speak very long to know that I am someone who's very much hurrah for science. But uh, I did feel that information is good. It's reassuring to hear the story behind it. The book is hugely reassuring. I have some very, very close girlfriends who I would not describe as anti-vaccine, but they are hesitant. They're, they're concerned about it. They've got issues that they feel haven't been quite addressed. They don't feel reassured. If you are one of those people, I think listening to Catherine speak and reading the book Vaxxers will definitely help to put your mind at rest about wherever your query may lie, really, whatever bit of it is making you feel a bit hesitant about taking the vaccine. Anyway, I'm going to stop now because we've had how many Lego men over the side? Let's see. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. Well, it's not too bad. Only eight. I've got to go and pick them up. And I will see you on the other side. Enjoy. So basically, I was supposed to be speaking to you in person and yeah. we're doing it remotely because... So I'm really glad you still made time for me. Thank you, because, yeah, I'm actually sat at home. Two of my kids um, got COVID last week 
Um, and I was always going to start with a thank you because my husband and I both have AstraZeneca. <laughs> Which is quite, the only reason I'm laughing is because I've done loads and loads of these interviews, but it's the first time where the person I'm talking to has had such a direct impact <laughs> on my life. And I suppose for you, it must be like the idea now that you're meeting so many people where they have had received the vaccine that you helped to create. I mean, what does that feel like? It's really, I mean, it's really overwhelming sometimes, to be honest, and it's very humbling. And I think everybody that starts off a career in science always imagines that you're doing that for some kind of public good. You imagine that you're there to learn stuff, to find things out and to tell the world about them, to make the world a better place in some small way. But and, and then since I've been doing this vaccine development job, which I've only been doing for three years, I guess that gets a bit closer to having a direct impact on somebody's life because you really are working on, on developing new medicines. But yeah, none of us ever imagined really that you would be having a, a medicine that you've made in your own arm because I've had AstraZeneca and my friends have and my friends' parents have and that we now get emails from from strangers just saying thank you into our inboxes. It's a, it's a really lovely and, and humbling experience. Obviously, we would prefer not to have had to live through a pandemic to get there. But yeah, it's something that I think will will have changed me and changed my team. Yeah, and, and presumably three years, which is actually, you know, pretty recent history. The, the, the last thing you're thinking when you start vaccine development is that you're going to so quickly find yourself in the midst of something where one of the recipients will be will be you and your loved ones. Yeah, that's right. So the, the team that I work with at, at the university have really over the last 20 years been focusing on making vaccines against diseases that really aren't likely to impact our everyday lives because they're vaccines for emerging diseases, outbreak pathogens or diseases that affect low middle income countries. So malaria, TB, Zika, chikungunya, Ebola, plague. Um, and so although they're important that we, we tackle those and as a university, it's our job to do that. Yeah, the idea that we would be making a vaccine that then would be in deployment in the UK hadn't really ever crossed our minds. No, and it sounds like as well the last um, couple of years for you have been full of lots of changes as well and your personal life as well as obviously everything you've been doing with in the vaccine department. So do you think you've really had a chance to sort of catch your breath a little bit and, and take stock of what's been going on? So we're often asked that, Sarah and I, because I think we did. I mean, obviously, the book was mostly about vaccine manufacture. But in, in order to tell that story, we did need to tell a bit about what we were going through. Mm. And we wanted to place our own personal lives in it to a small extent to, to humanise us, to let people know that we are just two middle-aged women having meetings most <laughs> <laughs> and uh, also to place it into the context of what everyone else was doing over these 18 months, you know, when you got, when nobody could get toilet paper, could they? Nobody could get pasta in Tesco's. It was all a bit of a, a mess. And so, yeah, it has been hard. Um, and I've moved house and I, because I'd separated from my husband just before the, before the pandemic hit, which was, you know, in hindsight, probably a good thing because us being locked down together probably would have resulted in a worse relationship than we have now. Yeah. Um, and yeah, and I, my daughter was off school, the same as everybody's. And then there was key worker school. And then, you know, everything was just completely complicated on top of us having to deliver the biggest, biggest project of our lives. We had to do it in a pandemic. Yeah, I mean, I suppose it's funny because I know you say the book is, is primarily about that. But actually, there are lots of themes that come through it. Um, one of them is definitely a love of food, which I, is very much resonates <laughs> with me. 
I yes. mean, we sort of start the book with pizza, and we even, there's even <laughs> a brilliant analogy for creating the vaccine that's based on making your own bread. Yes. <laughs> um, but I think that whole thing of breaking down the walls of the sort of formality of how we interact, that's something that's been happening so much with the pandemic at large you know when you go into I remember during I must have been through in the first lockdown I went to the bank and I ended up having a whole chat with the guy that's yes. working there about we were desperate to yes. speak to somebody absolutely we? yeah. and he was talking about how his kids were all off school and what was happening with that and I think you know this sort of humanizing of all these different roles and how we normally interact that's been happening everywhere but mm. how 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 has it been do you did you feel like you were sometimes having to you know, balance this, you know, be your daughter and um, the, the two of you together. And I know you say in your book that like most of last year was the two of you together and that she was your rock and a lot of it, but obviously you're having to go off to work. I mean, one of the phrases that really surprised me is you said one of your favourite phrases of 2020 is there are more hours in the day. Can you please explain how that's a favourite <laughs> phrase? Well, I think that's right. I think you can surprise yourself under extreme situations that one of the things that Sarah and I just had to do was just get on with it. So although, you know, we didn't have the time available to us to think, to go around multiple iterations of thinking about things, sometimes, and, and certainly at the beginning when we when you we were really up against time pressure to get this vaccine delivered as quickly as possible, um, perhaps under normal circumstances, we might have run those muting meetings a few more times. But this time we just had to get it done, get on with it. You can, Ellie's 10 now, my daughter, so I can get her home. And you know what? The internet sometimes has to be my friend. Sometimes, you know, she likes to watch tips of Minecraft on YouTube and that's okay. Because <laughs> I have to run a meeting with AstraZeneca in the US in an evening. So it was just a matter of being flexible to that and not saying, you know, I don't have to get everything done perfectly. Mm. Let's let's get things done well enough. Good enough was good enough, I think, the last 18 months. And for all of us, I think that's something that we had to adapt to. There was no there was no way to be perfect parenting and perfect schooling last year. Yeah. So we just had to get a bit done every day. Good enough was enough sometimes. And Ellie knew that. She's 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 now at an age where I can explain to her, you know, she knows that she's the light of my life, but she also knows I have other things that I need to do too. So sometimes it was like, can you just go and play on the iPad for an hour because I've got to speak to Sophie Ellie Spexter on a Zoom call. <laughs> oh, God, please don't lump me in with that. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God, I feel terrible. Is, is she not actually doing that now, though, is she? She's aware no, of she's okay, on good. holiday with her dad. So she's having a proper holiday this week. So I... I've got Good. loads of time this week because there's no money. <laughs> so I'm catching up on all my work backlog, um, which is great. Yeah, and I think, you know, it's, did you find, because I took a little while to come to that um, good enough is good enough uh, realisation. I think I, it probably took me a few weeks of thinking, how, how are people supposed to parent in a pandemic? But do you think, because your work was so vital, did you feel like you were just able to just focus, like all those years of training and sort of readiness was there something that sort of kicked in do you think so I mean I was very lucky so the school was open for key workers at the beginning so Ellie although Ellie was very unhappy to be required to go to school when her friends weren't required to go to school at the beginning after a couple of weeks of that she soon had realized that all her friends were bored and miserable at home and that it was better to be going to key worker school than not so I was at least from like nine till half past three I did have 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 childcare during the day because otherwise it would have been impossible I needed those first you know the first 
March, April, May last year. I needed to be at work. There was no, there was no getting away from that. But then by by the kind of second lockdown, um, when a lot more of my work was at home, I was I was keeping her at home, and she was doing you know quizzes and things. Okay, and that's right. It was some part of that was nice. I think we we built a new relationship, and she. I think she learned to be quite independent and to work. Some some things they have learned. We despair a bit, you know, they haven't done enough maths or they haven't done enough science, but they've learned some resilience and some other ways of working that we all have a bit. We've all learned to work in different ways, haven't we, including the kids? Probably. Yeah, oh, definitely, definitely. And I think, as you say, the fact that she is old enough to be able to understand things and, you know, she already presumably knew what you did for a living and the significance of how that would plan out. But, I, I, you know, I know that, you wrote about when she saw the documentary that you did. So what was it like when she was finally yeah, So that's the panorama. That yes. was shown in December, I think, last year. Mm-hmm. Um, and obviously we hadn't seen the seen it before it's aired. So she and I sat down on um, the sofa to watch it together. And I was very impressed by the panorama. I felt it, it really told the story in a thorough way. And what they were doing was they were, as they were going through the timeline, they were um, putting up the the caseload so how many cases had been reported in the UK as the pandemic progressed and the numbers started getting really really large and and I think Ellie had had picked up on that and was like mum because some way they're protected we protect them don't we from the worst of it we don't really want them to see the horrible news and we don't really want to see them to see the TV of the people on the ventilators because it's scary yeah Um, and I think maybe it was the first time that she had realized the severity of the pandemic in the UK because we kind of bubbled them they knew they were off school but I didn't really know why to protect grandma yeah Um, so I think it was the first time she really was at home to how serious it was and how serious it was on a global level yeah yeah, she really liked the machines. So there's a couple of shots of at the end where when the vaccine's in full production, it's at a at a plant in in Wales at Wachart where they're filling yeah. millions of vials on a on a conveyor belt in a big factory. She's like, "Mummy, do you have do you have a machine like that?" And I have to say to her, "No, we do it very slowly and one at a time. Um, so not quite the same scale. <laughs> so maybe she, maybe she'll be as a big science engineer when she goes up. She likes the machines. Yeah, I have to say, I remember that shot. Those those scenes of things." something mass fill like that with those machines yeah. is really yeah. it's quite hypnotic and I think I mean I, I know you say we protect our kids but I suppose for you you might have been dealing with an extra layer of that because you're actually actively seeking out and privy to a lot of information um, where you're really analyzing that data and maybe understanding what that what that means in a way that actually for most of us we maybe didn't didn't know. I think early on, yes, we ha- I have a lot of colleagues who are clinical scientists and clinical doctors, and we were getting reports from hospitals and global reports. Um, and we knew really early, early on, I think, that it was this was going to be a serious, serious event. And once it was in the UK, it was not going to be, you know, there's no way going back from there. So it was only going to grow. And that's why we were taking it very seriously very early. Um, and a lot of the time, yeah, I did have information they couldn't talk about. So when we're running the trials, we don't talk about the data. That's not ethical while the trials are running and they haven't been properly analysed. So we don't really have the full picture. Lots of on the, on the school runs or seeing seeing the other mums that were at key worker school. So they're also NHS workers. So we all are able to kind of get together socially distant and say, oh, my God, this is awful, isn't it? Because we, we were all in the same kind of situation. I guess the, the other parents down at the school playground but everybody was asking me all the time I mean I think Ellie and every all of my friends got really bored with and me always being asked whenever we met new people what's going on how's the vaccine coming is it ready yet it was always the same questions Ellie would roll her eyes and say (laughs) 
everyone's asking mum about her work. But I suppose that was there a bit um, quite near the beginning where you felt like you could see what was happening, but everybody else was still continuing life very much as normal. It was really, it was really hard because I'm not an, a, an expert in infectious diseases, so I was listening the same as everybody to the to the the, the press conferences from the government or to announcements on the news, the same as everybody. And yet, I could see in my professional work that people were appearing to be more concerned than were than the noises that were coming in the press, and that's hard to know what to what to do about that because obviously I don't have a voice to say to my friends look guys probably shouldn't be going to the pub um I'm sure that my medical colleagues are not drinking in the pub today um and I think I was also naive at how serious it was going to get I think at the early March we were taking it seriously at work but I hadn't really cottoned on that this was going to you know this was going to shut down life as we knew it for a significant amount of time yeah Um, yeah well I suppose as well it's sort of Whilst you're, um, you know, going to work and in the lab working on on the vaccine, you've simultaneously got going on in you the same thing that's happening in everybody and how humans tend to work when we're faced with things that are scary and big and seem seem really quite unimaginable. So that whole thing of going, but surely that can't, yeah, this can't, can't be. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And I suppose in the book, you know, I mean, I, I mentioned one thing, but the, the other two things that come through aside from the vaccine itself, is definitely what Ellie means to you and being a mother, that's all laced throughout the book. And also how you want to break down this idea that science, and particularly women working in science, is a sort of otherworldly thing. So I think, in a way, the last 18 months has sort of brought all these strands together in the most extraordinary way because it sounds like even before the book, even before joining the vaccine team, this idea that you wanted to encourage a different understanding of how women in science are perceived and getting girls to feel empowered about working in science. Is that something that came through your own experience of it when you were growing up and how you felt when you first started working in that field? I feel there's sometimes a disconnect between the portrayal of science in the media, for sure, and and how it's really done. And I also think that science has changed dramatically over the last, say, 20 years in terms of the collaborative international and real team working of it. So there perhaps was a point in the past where it was a, a single quite often male, quite often perhaps independently wealthy, could have been to the good schools and could afford to do science as a career. If you think, if you look back 100 years, there wasn't any way that people who didn't have funds themselves could really do science. So that idea of a, a single eureka moment and a boffin alone in a laboratory figuring something out, I mean, it's great for the movies, yeah, because it has, it has <laughs> but it's not, it's not how we do things these days. And so this idea, trying to get across to people that what we what you need to be as a scientist is a real collaborative team player who can find good people to work with rather than to work against. And this was something that Sarah and I were always trying to get across, hmm. that there was never a race against other vaccine inventors, for example, that we were all trying to pull together to get to the point where we can beat the virus. So yeah. we were trying to race race the virus rather than race other manufacturers. And that's clear now, as we see global rollout, we need all the vaccines we can get. So it was never a race against each other. Um, so yes, yeah, so science isn't only for one type of person. And if you look at our team, we have computer scientists, we have statisticians, people that do the real hands-on, nurses, clinicians, people that are interested in 
in the engineering aspects of it. So we need people that like taking pumps apart and putting them back together. Um, there's a, a huge variety of different skills and different personalities that go into building a team to take on a project this big and succeed. Yeah, and I think it's like when you're saying about, you know, people not seeing it as a race, but seeing it as like everybody, is sort of the science world is at one, just trying to work together. And, and when you have breakthrough moments and things start to to roll out is that how it's received you know is it like across the board your sort of colleagues and everybody sort of feeling like this is just wonderful for science in general I think so so I think so if you think about the first clinical trial data which came out which was in November and which was from the Pfizer BioNTech um, uh, trials that were running in the US when we saw that we were as we were as a team incredibly happy because that was real evidence that the, the process was going to work, that it is going to be possible to make a, a vaccine against coronavirus and therefore that ours is much more likely to work. So, you know, that data is informative to us and will go on to inform us. And also that technology will transform the vaccine landscape because that RNA technology is, is clearly amazing and had never really been shown to be working in human populations before. So that's transformative for the field. And I am sure that the scientists I work with at the Jenner will now use that technology going forwards as well as as well as our adenovirus technology. Everybody wins by progress, yeah? And yeah. the whole point of science is we share it and we build on that foundation to, to grow new things. Yeah, I mean, that must be... Uh, as a sort of when you were younger the, the idea of being part of something that's that's that groundbreaking that much of a milestone in the scientific community that's that must be something that I mean can you imagine if you'd known that growing up yeah you know <laughs> that's why I don't think you do I think so I mean I I, I am a you'll have gathered I, I'm I'm naive and I'm you know I, I believe in there is some utopia where humans are are good people and work for a greater cause and, and do good <laughs> things and I, I have that I think intrinsic like naivety or belief that people are, are generally good and altruistic um, and for me science always felt like that the idea that you would find something out and then tell people so that they can use it always felt to me that that was the route I was going to take so I never saw myself working for a pharma company that was going to keep its results secret I'm not saying I won't ever do that one of the things I have learned a lot this last day. <laughs> is actually how pharma operates and how um, industrial science can be hugely utilised for the public good. Um, and it's completely changed my view of, of some aspects of, of non-academic science, to be honest. Um, I think, yeah, it's it's been an interesting 18 months. Yeah. That's, a, that's a good, yeah, <laughs> understatement, I'd say, Catherine, actually. But I suppose, it's, I mean, I'm like you as well. I feel like that kind of people intrinsically good and that altruistic and the idea of, you know, sort of, I remember actually, you know, in, when when everything started to roll out and the vaccine, my mum is very, you know, it's all hurrah for science. You know, that was very much our sort of family's take on it. And I feel that all the people that feel positive about the science and about what's going on are sort of all feel positive in, in the same way. It's a sort of collective, positive, happy. And then on the other side of the fence, obviously... You've got people that are, I think actually Sarah summed it up really well in, in your book, you've either got the, the sort of anti-vax brigade, but then you've also got vaccine hesitancy, which I actually think is a really clever phrase because there's a lot of people that don't want to really be caught up in the idea of being anti-something. They're just not sure if they're, they're ready themselves. But I think that, you know, the idea that, um, that we've got this murky aspect of a, a political aspect to the pandemic must be incredibly frustrating to people working in your field where you just so, don't yeah. want to politicise it. It's it, it's difficult and, and, and we always 
do reiterate, it's perfectly normal to feel hesitant about things which are new and things that you don't understand. Um, and I think that that is, it is of course, a, a normal human response. And the only way for us as scientists who are not hesitant, because we you know we really truly believe that we've we've made these vaccines in entirely the right way um, and that they are necessary to get us out of this pandemic situation. So it feels to us now as the as we see the virus spread, particularly with the more infectious variants, there effectively is going to be very challenging to ever get to a zero COVID situation anytime soon. So you have two choices. You either get vaccinated or you get infected. And we see, we've all seen that COVID infection is very serious. Um, and we know now with real world data that vaccination reduces the severity of COVID. So it reduces the chance that you get infected. It reduces the chance that you pass it on. And it clearly prevents you going to, into hospital and prevents you dying. So those are, those are real world effects that we are seeing in real people. And we hope perhaps that by writing a book, by putting ourselves out there, by trying to explain what it is that we've done and that people now see the results of that so people can see in the real world how vaccinated people do much better if they've been exposed to COVID, that some of those people who are hesitant will, will see that this was done properly and that you can trust us and that it is the right decision for them to make. But I'm not advocating for compulsory vaccination I don't think perhaps in certain circumstances that's that's reasonable but it's not my job to tell you you must it's just my job perhaps to say I have and this is why life is full of awesome what-ifs and some not so much like unexpected medical costs that's why United Healthcare provides health protector guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out-of-pocket costs learn more at uh1.com Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, how get 30, how get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Yeah, because it sounds like a lot of the motivation for wanting this book to be out there and available to people was um, a sort of encounter you had with a woman when you were on, on holiday with your daughter last August and queuing up for your, your evening pizza and the woman didn't obviously didn't know what you did for a living and was sort of expressing her, 
I think she thought that it may be to do with 5G masks and all these other ideas and don't know what's in the vaccine. And you were like, well, actually, you don't know this, but I, I know exactly right. what's in the vaccine. Yeah, that's right. And that's, and, and that's part of my job, isn't it? So I'm a university academic. So we do science, we do experiments, we try and find stuff out. I'm a university vaccine manufacturer, so we make vaccines and get them into clinical trials around the world. But I'm also a teacher. I'm here to to take my expertise and try and share that with my students. But also it's part of our remit these days. It's part of our funding requirements that we explain science to the public and we get their input on our science and try and incorporate that. So it's a two-way street, public engagement and public communication. So, yeah, it was frustrating to us, particularly at the beginning. It's probably less now because people have seen in the real world the, the consequences of the vaccine and the good that it can do. Uh, but at the beginning, when it was very new, and there was a lot, there was lots in the press. Nobody's ever made a vaccine against a coronavirus, which wasn't true. Um, we don't know what this technology is. We don't know what's in this vaccine. And obviously, I did know. So yeah, to to try to at least in a form that is accessible, but is also completely accurate. So we've tried quite hard in the book, Sarah and I, to to use. We have a really good writer who works with us, Deborah, and she would take our sciencey writing and just make sure that we weren't using words that were not accessible. So, but but then we went round that editing process multiple times to make sure whenever we used a non-technical term, it was still completely appropriate. So we hope that although it's an accessible book, it's also a completely accurate book, and there's no there's no cheating in telling the story there. Yeah, and I think actually, you know, the, the choice of words actually, I think a lot of that has been so key. Because even the fact that there was a lot of talk about finding a vaccine is quite a misleading <laughs> idea, isn't it? And Sarah it's almost, hates that. Well, like she was just like it's just out there behind the bins, and if she would just look in the right place, boom! Oh, there's a coronavirus vaccine. Like Sarah, so scientists at the Jenner, Adrian and Sarah, have been working on developing this technology for what twenty years. Yeah. And Sarah's worked on MERS in 2017, so Middle Eastern Respiratory Syndrome, another coronavirus, and she had good trial data from that before we started with this one. So yeah. The idea that she just found it in a field is quite frustrating <laughs> to her because it's yeah painstaking years of research and endeavour and, and, and going through multiple processes of trials and tests. So, yeah, we didn't find it. She designed it and then we made it. <laughs> exactly. But that is, I think you're right. It does give this, finding it gives this idea of sort of people running into a lab going, I've just had an idea. Have you tried mixing a garlic with a banana? You know, it's like, <laughs> they're just sort of like going to stumble across it. Um, yeah. Whereas actually what's going on is actually way more reassuring. And as you say, it's, got, it's backed up by years worth of data. Um, <laughs> but I think there's so much about rhetoric that introduces that. And, you know, you can't get away from the fact as well that the last 18 months, there's all sorts of things that can, can be scary and abstract. And there's all different ways for that fear to come out. And in amongst that, you've got the fact that a lot of people have been quite alone with their thoughts. So a lot of the things that are underlying and anxiety you have about all manner of things can actually be channeled into something where it makes you feel like if if this is a government designed thing if this is you know bill gates if this is something otherworldly then someone somewhere knows what they're doing and i can say i don't like it because the idea of what's really been going on is a lot more terrifying in a way because initially yeah, so was, nobody knows exactly yeah. i guess that's right and and we were anxious yeah and i was April, May last year, you know, we didn't know what we were facing and we were in this very unusual situation not being allowed to leave the house mm. and we all have elderly relatives who were afraid because we knew that, I mean, for you and I, okay, it's, it's a disease that would make us sick but it's unlikely to kill us but elderly 
parents, my parents were both in their 70s. I was I was afraid for them and they were very afraid. Mm. And it's true, I can understand why it would be easy to say, yeah, you're right, have somebody to blame it on. Exactly. And and there isn't anybody to blame it on at that point, apart from perhaps the systems that, that are, are meaning we're not responding well enough. Mm-hmm. And going forward, we need to look at how we responded and, and, and what, what went well and what went badly and try not to make those mistakes again next time. But yes, I can see the attraction in there being a, an evil global core that's, that's there doing this to us because then it gives you a, a, a target for perhaps an anger or a yeah, uh, somebody's doing this to us. But of course, that isn't the reality. The reality is nature is complicated and viruses will always be emerging. And we have called this disease, disease X, because we were always expecting a disease to emerge that would cause an outbreak or a pandemic. And the reality is now we have to prepare for disease Y, because there will be another one. Mm. We can't stop that. We just have to be better prepared next time. And hopefully yeah. the science we've done this time will set us up for that. The systems that we've built this time will set us up for that. And I think the public is much better aware. One thing, another thing that's happened this 18 months is we're all a lot more scientifically literate. I learned a lot of statistics um, that I hadn't really thought about before because you know they were in the newspapers. It was discussed on, on the six o'clock news every day. We were hearing about our numbers and exponential curves, yeah. And that's something that I think we all carry forward. Maybe we're all a bit cleverer than we were 18 months ago because we've had some training. Yeah, and I think we've definitely been encouraged as well to think a lot more about what it is about being human that actually really makes the whole yes. experience of it more than just um, the sort of leaden sum of its parts. Because I know that in... And you were writing about the things you wanted to do. It was just like, I want to go out and I buy a round of drinks with my friends. I want to go dancing. You know, all those really, you know, I want to be able to hug my mum. Simple things. Really simple things. And actually, you know, when you take away all those bits and you just got work and maintaining, you know, roof over your head and food on the table. And it's it's really tough without the other interactions that that actually... I felt that very much. I I, I realised more and more what a sociable animal I am and how much I missed my friends and how much I missed my family. And so we were Zoom baking, as I described, that we were doing something together every week because my parents were by themselves in Kent and I'm here in Oxfordshire, my sister's in London. We just weren't allowed to see each other. Mm. And and weirdly, we, we actually... I'm not that close a family in, in that I don't speak to my mum every day. I probably don't even really speak to her once a week in normal times. But because we were all on our own, we were making a, an effort to, to join up and cook the same recipe every day on a Sunday for an hour and then come back when it was cooked and eat it together. And some of them were disasters. But it was just a nice... <laughs> it's a really nice little... idea, though. I like that. <laughs> and so it, and it made me realise, I think it brought us closer together as a family, this enforced distance. Mm. Um, and technology, of course, enabled that enormously. But I miss my friends a lot. I missed, yeah. I missed just being able to pop round to a mate. When you've had a bad day at work, I would go to my friend Sally's and we'd have a glass of wine. Yeah. Um, and that I wasn't able to do that. And then when... My friends had noticed I was having a hard time, which I really was because I was working really hard, but also it was quite stressful at home. Um, sometimes my friends would notice because we're good on WhatsApp, so we have a lot of WhatsApp chat. And I'd just come downstairs in the morning and somebody leave me a bunch of daffodils in the in the porch or a, a sandwich from the co-op because they knew I wouldn't get any food that day. And just having that connection with other people was was the thing that got me through, I think, some of the tough times last year. Oh, they sound like really good friends. and Yeah, I, I have a good crew. <laughs> you do. And I think also that thing, you're right, that it's the casual stuff that I've, I've 
realised was the hardest. Just being able to just say, as you say, like just pop round to see someone. Um, and, you know, you've mentioned your family. When you were growing up, they, were they both, both working parents? Are you, are they, have you got a science background in your family? So my dad... So my dad's a, a river man. So he used to work at the docks in Tilbury, so on the Thames, unloading the, the heavy um, ships that come in and transferring it to barges and taking it up the river. So a, a river man. So he would work strange shift patterns. So he'd either be not home or home when mm-hmm. I was young. And then all the docks closed in the 80s um, and he had to retrain. So he retrained as a London taxi driver. Oh, cool. So he was around and not around. And also when you're a cab driver, you work straight shifts. So mm. he would either be there all day or we wouldn't see him at all for weeks on end, it felt like. Um, and my mum just worked part time in a school kind of setting up the setting up the science labs. She has a degree in maths, but didn't really use it after we were born. So they're both, I think, interesting, like, What's the curious people? They're, they're curious about the world. My dad particularly is curious about the world. Didn't have very much formal education, but was very curious about the world. So I definitely have traits of both of them in me. But science wasn't really a thing that I knew was a career when I was young, I suspect, because I didn't know any scientists, really. Though we did have in Kent some big factories that did, like, um, chemical manufacturing. So I kind of could understand that chemistry was a job. So when I went to university, I thought I'd be a chemist. Um, and then I discovered that biochemistry was a thing and then everything changed. But um, I was always just interested in how stuff works and it felt to me that science was the route to figuring out how stuff works. And so when you were having your first baby, is that what you were doing at the time? You were working in biochemistry? Yeah, so I was in, I was in well, so genetics. So I did a degree in biochemistry and during that degree I discovered genetics as a concept and then a PhD in London in, in genetics and then... I worked in Paris for a bit and then in Brighton, still working on human genetics and how it is that your DNA manages to stay the same mostly, but occasionally changes and that's a mutation and that's the underpinning route to cancer development. So my research has always been understanding how genetic information changes over time in your body and how sometimes that leads to cancer and how we prevent that. So I've been all over the place with my career and then, yeah, so I moved to Cambridge to start my own research group, studying that, the process of copying DNA and keeping it um, as, as accurate as possible. And so I had a, had, my, had LA when I was just got started, really, on setting up that lab in Cambridge. So did you always, time. I was going to say, did you always think you'd be a mum? Oh, my, I, I, remember, I, I don't think I'm a very traditionally mumsy person. In that I don't really like children. Uh, <laughs> I mean, I totally don't like small babies. I was never a babysitter, you know? Yeah, I was yeah, never, yeah. never going to babysit other people's children when I was a teenager. Sorry, it's just such a brilliant set. I'm mumsy and I don't really like kids. Like, I don't actually not, know exactly you know, what you mean. You didn't like fetish the idea of baby. I'm not going to hold other people's children, yeah, you know? Enough. I don't, yeah, I don't want to go and get in there and poke them. I'm not like, oh, so cute. I, I don't really think they're that cute. Um, and so I never necessarily, it wasn't part of my absolute life goal. I must become a mother. But I, I remember very clearly my sister um, saying something similar. We were walking around a shopping centre in Cambridge many years ago. Um, and my sister saying something similar. Oh, I don't really like babies. And my mum just turning around to the two of us saying, right, you two, I'm not having this. I want to make it very clear. Clever women must have children. Um, so that was it, we were told. So they were, we were off, 
often are set on the path of procreation. Oh, I like your mum's take on it as well. You know, clever women must have children. Like, pass these genes on. You must <laughs> have your legacy. It. Yeah. Yeah. And so, yeah, Ellie, Ellie's great, but she does, she's not the only thing in my life, motherhood. I have to do other things too. She knows that. And that hopefully gives her resilience for the future. Yeah, definitely. And I think actually that kind of pragmatism about that, because I think um, when you have a child, it's it means you probably always spoke to her as her own person rather than having this sort of like, oh, I've had this cute baby. And then you sort of get like, cause some, sometimes people can really try and hold on to that childhood and not actually just let the kid just dictate who it is that they are. And it sounds like maybe you and Ellie have got quite a special relationship because it's like, right, you're here. This is, I'm over here doing my thing as well. I've got time for you. I mean, it's, do you think that's a sort of ability to compartmentalise or just, an, just knowing yourself and knowing what it is you need? I hope, I hope so. She's, she's hugely important to me and she, you know, I drop anything. If she needs me, mm. she, I hope she knows that I'm there at any point. You know, you'll move a mountain, you'll get on any plane, you'll square up to any bully, you'll do anything for her. But, yeah, it's not in her best interest that I am unhappy because I'm not able to do other things. She likes to see me out with my friends um, she likes to see me working, I think, and, and being successful. And so writing this book was most of my Sundays from like no, probably like five months every Sunday I would be in my office and she would be out in the garden or playing with her friends. Or, so she knows that it's part of what makes me able to be a good mum to her is me not having to be a mum to her all the time. Yeah, I think actually that ability to be a bit selfish with yourself is actually really, really good, um, especially if you know that work... Uh, or it's so much more than just work to you. It's vocation. And yeah. I don't think anyone can argue with that when they see the passion and dedication that you've put in with, with everything you've done with the vaccine. I mean, that's that's going to shut anybody up, really, isn't it? <laughs> but it is that. It's, it's not being able to... I don't know. I haven't always found it easy to say no to things. And I, I think... Some point that's good because it means I get the a lot of opportunity to get things done. But sometimes I have in the past struggled when I've taken on too much. When you're moving house and you're moving job and you've got a new baby and you're trying to support the husband and you're trying to be at home all the time and trying to be a mum and a mentor. and a, There's a lot of things there. And sometimes I think I have spread myself too thin and as a consequence have suffered. Um, and so learning a bit as I get older and where to where to say, actually, I can't do this right now or how to pass on things that other people would do better. I've got in the last five years much better at delegating tasks that other people would actually be better at. You know, this understanding that you don't have to do all of it. There are other people around who can help you and you've hired them because they're good at their jobs. So maybe you should just let them do their jobs instead of having to take it all on yourself. And it doesn't matter if you haven't hoovered the stairs. <laughs> That's very true. And I think it's quite hard to teach that to someone, actually. I mean, yeah. I was thinking if you saw Ellie in a similar situation when she's older, what can you say? But I think, yeah. I think sometimes... Some of it comes from learned experience. Because you, you're sure, if you look back on it, times when I've been in you know, quite difficulty, I had a period of quite significant depression. And it was because I was doing too much. And I hadn't realised that I shouldn't be doing that much. Because I thought that I had to, that I was the only person who could do this. And it isn't true. You're never the only person that can do this. But I don't know how you pass that knowledge on. Because if somebody had said to me at the time, Kath, you're just doing too much, let somebody else do that, I wouldn't have believed them, I don't think. 
No, and I think um, it's very hard to delegate when you're not ready to, actually, because yeah. also you feel like you've sort of set yourself up with this challenge and then sometimes you can feel like you're in the middle of an experiment on yourself. Like, how much can one person actually take before I just sort of mm. crumple? And actually, you can kind of keep going through a lot of storms. I and mean, I'm, I'm speaking as if we're on the same field. I think actually what you've been dealing with is a level of stress I've never experienced because I've never had it where, you know, I'm trying to develop something that can actually help to save humankind. <laughs> so no, forgive me for this my... this year was quite... But this year was... It was surprisingly... Although we were working like mad, I think the cause, and everybody was in it together, there was no competing... There were no competing priorities. So I think for the team, on some level, although we were working crazy hours, because we knew what we had to do and we knew the importance of it, and we were like empowered to prioritize that above all things it actually wasn't that bad I think some people are struggling a bit now we're trying to go back to normal mm. and kind of the adrenaline in the cortisol is gone a bit and we're like okay now we're just going to go back and do our day jobs um and I'm trying to encourage everyone to take their holidays this year and make sure that everybody gets some time off so they can come back in September refreshed and ready to start again but this year, weirdly, I think wasn't the most stressful part of my life, perhaps just because I had been through that phase, you say, and I've got to the place where I'm confident enough to delegate and to trust other people to do mm. their things well. Do you think there are some sort of life skills you did pick up from from being Ellie's mum that you were able to use when you were doing when you're doing your oh, work? Oh, are you uh, suggesting that Oxford University professors are sometimes like toddlers? <laughs> <laughs> Actually, I wasn't, but I love that idea. <laughs> <laughs> just put all your toys back in the pram. No, not at all. <laughs> no, Don't sit not, over yeah, there and no, think about what you've done. Yes, naughty. <laughs> we should instigate a naughty step for departmental meetings. But no. I think what Ellie, what being a mum teaches you, like I say, is it teaches you patience um, and that you can't always have your own way. And I think that's the thing. Good enough is sometimes good enough. Don't, Yes. Sacrifice the perfect. Don't sacrifice the good for the perfect. Yeah, but I think in a lot of ways, um, the fact that all this stuff has kicked off in, at the same time I entered my 40s has actually been quite handy mm. because I think I've been able to sort of separate out those things a little bit quicker than I probably would have done if yeah. I'd been 10 years younger. I think that's right. I think Sarah and I, so Sarah's in her 50s and I'm now 46, um, and we are starting to feel that we can, you know, we should be running this place. <laughs> No, well, that's middle-aged great. women, middle-aged women all the world, yeah. Maybe we we should be doing more of that. Um, we look around us, um, certainly at the top levels of, of management in universities, and we start to see female representation. It's certainly not 50-50 yet. And um, I don't think the world would be a worse place if we had more females at the top end of the responsibility spectrum. Oh, no. I mean, that's basically, yeah, my, my podcast has got a lot of tributes to that. And I think... You know, the, the, one of the things that's obviously happened alongside the work you've been doing in the lab and the, the success of it is that you've been you've now found yourself with more of a platform to put things out there and to be heard. So, do you think you're finding the significance of that in actually being able to promote that? It's hard. It's again, it's, it's such a new thing for me and for Sarah. We've been for our careers in normally quite dark laboratories in our safety specs and our lab coats getting on with doing science um, and so it's it's hard to know yeah it's hard to know what 
whether we are the right people to take a platform, whether what we have to say is, is of interest or is in any way profound, or if we do take a platform, it's hard to know what, what we haven't always thought about it because we're quite academic, technical people. Um, and so it comes back to, this, I think, this idea that I think science needs to be seen. I think that, that it's important for us to put ourselves out there in a way that we can be trusted and we can be interrogated and that we are always going to answer questions that people will put to us so we don't have things to hide and that in fact is how science works science is public domain we publish it but we tend to publish it in quite esoteric journals that nobody else is going to read because it's technically complicated stuff and all universities of course do have a comms department now in the press office but maybe we as scientists never really wanted to engage with them because it's just a bit of effort and it's outside of our comfort zone and we don't really know how to do that or if we should or if we stick our head above a power pit if we're going to get shot down um, but I think that's one thing that I will take forward is that yeah, we have a job to do to do the science, but we also have a job to do to communicate the science. And I'll try to do that better going forward. Yeah, well, I think that's part of a general wave, though, because I feel like in the last, I don't know, let's say 10, 15 years of things being becoming more unpopular, like TED Talks and podcasts. And I think yes. people are enjoying the idea of broadening their the information they have and their knowledge yes. about something and being educated into adulthood. We didn't really I love that, to yeah. prioritise it in the same way, I don't think. No, it's great, isn't it? Yeah, I think we've really great. seen this, 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 that terrible phrase from Michael Gove, the public had enough of experts, is completely not what I see no, in the people tosh. that I interact with. Um, and that's not just, I don't think I live in a particularly academic bubble. I mean, I know I'm an academic at Oxford, but most of my friends are not. Um, and and from what I see, as I said, with people sending us emails or sending us notes, people are responding to the fact that we're we're talking about science and that we're trying to teach it. And I think that's right. There's loads of great science programming out there, mm. and there's loads of of great information and content, even on Twitter or TikTok. TikTok was doing these amazing little vaccine understanding videos. It's called uh, some guys called Team Halo great content available that's really accessible and I think we all want to learn and I want to learn I want to learn much more about all of the other aspects of, of pandemic responses that I don't know and then going forward into yeah com continuing to learn because that's how we grow. Absolutely I think actually Michael Gove couldn't be more wrong about that really because I think that the miss that the misplaced thing is I think people are bored of not know always knowing where to get reliable data but I think when it comes to experts, I think people are really, really open to that. I think everybody wants to feel reassured and given lots of information, actually. That's all a good the issue is, of course, when experts don't agree. Yeah. But experts often don't agree. This is, all, this is the case. Science is done by making mistakes and getting things wrong as well. So there has to be some understanding of the fact that a data set, which exists as, a, as an object, can be interpreted in more than one way, particularly when it comes to things like modelling and trying to predict the future, which are always, of course, extremely challenging. But And then trying to interpret what a thing means and then trying to decide what we should do as a response to a data set. Obviously, none of these things are easy questions. Um, and so the interplay between science and policy and journalism are all complicated spaces to be in. But that isn't to say that we shouldn't try and get good quality information and then get lots of different voices of, of opinion out there um, and and perhaps stop some of this false equivalency whereby if 90% of the world scientists agree that A is A and then 10% think A is B, maybe we should give a bit more weight to A. I don't know how we quite manage that. 
Yeah, and I think um, it's also about making sure that people feel that the the information is imparted to them but people as enthusiastic with you as you are about people actually understanding and getting to grips with it. Because I think that's what's really important. When you watch the, the, the best teachers are the ones that don't actually, it's not about having all the answers, it's the ones that just really want all the people listening to feel empowered by any, any information from it that they're grasping and to build on it. So that, you know, that's actually what your book is about. You get that on every page. It's just going, look, it's all here. Everything you could need to read, it's here. If, that, if you weren't sure about that, let's put it in these terms. Let's put it in these terms. How can we get you to feel reassured and empowered by what you're reading so that you understand something that you might have injected into you and what the process it's been on? It, I think it's completely fascinating and just incredible, actually. What you've done is absolutely amazing. I think it's... I think it'll probably take a really long time for the... I know you said the adrenaline and the cortisol started to, you know, to de- decrease, but really the implications of what's gone on is, is absolutely huge. It's huge. When I think about how we felt March last year and how terrifying mm-hmm. it was and how bleak and yeah. the fact that, you know, really all things considered, touch wood and all that, it wasn't too long to wait to hug, hug my mum or go and sing yeah. at a festival. Um, I mean, you mentioned that you, you know, all that time you were really looking forward to hugging your mum. How did that feel after you'd both had your double vaccines and you were able to actually physically interact? Yeah, I, I, I do. I realised that I missed that. Um, being a single person during the pandemic means I just had no, no human touch. It was there was nobody to have skin on skin contact with, and and when that's not not with you, you realise how much you miss it. Even though previously you've taken it completely for granted, uh, we're going <laughs> to hug all the time. Whenever I get an opportunity to see them, I'm going to hug them because you never know what's what's around the next corner. And um, yeah, so last week we had a huge milestone. So last week, a billion doses of, of Oxford AstraZeneca vaccine have been delivered globally. Wow. So we went from that day in. April, when we injected the first volunteer of a single dose, at which point there were 500 doses in existence because they were the 500, the first 500 that my team had made. So just over a year later, we've got a billion doses in shipments around the world, a lot of them in India and going out to low middle income countries um, because of the the commitment from Oxford, from AstraZeneca to deliver those at, at no profit during the pandemic. So they're going out to the world. So we hope that that we're continuing to do good. That's amazing. A billion, a billion doses. It's such a big number. I remember the first time somebody from AstraZeneca used the word a billion in, in, a, in a meeting. It was it was probably only in May last, last year, very soon after they'd signed up with us. Um, and, and that obviously is it's not a number that we had ever considered, really. Oh, that actually makes me feel weepy. Crazy. That's insane. <laughs> you know, I actually got a bit weepy when I went for my vaccine as well. Oh, I did too. <laughs> I'd had to, I, did, I get very emotional. I had to say to the lady, I'm going to have to tell you, I made that. <laughs> I mean, not the actual one, but it does all come from the very initial stock that we made in my tiny little lab in Oxford. So that's the seed stock that then goes out and seeds larger and larger reactors to make the dose. So every dose that anybody ever gets did originate from the very first batch that we made back in March last year. So when you sat down and the woman was doing it, did you say to her, like... Yeah, I said, I'm going to tell you this. You won't care. I'm going to tell you this. My name's Kath and I'm part of the vaccine team and we made that. And she was like, oh, my God. So we had to do a selfie. So there's a selfie somewhere. I think it's probably on Twitter of me and, and the nice the nice nurse lady who was a radiologist and had come back into the NHS to, to volunteer to do vaccination centres because everybody there was volunteers. 
That's amazing. That is amazing. And I'm surprised you haven't printed up a T-shirt. I would have... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, I've got my sticker somewhere. They gave us a sticker, oh, didn't they? So I've got my sticker. I've kept it. Yeah, definitely. So what are you working on at the moment? Are you working on the one for for the why? So we've been so we've been doing some work with developing vaccines against new variants. So that, but that's obviously now really AstraZeneca's um, project. So we've been teaching them how to how we do the very first step, so that they can then take that and lead with that going forward. So that's not something that we will be doing in the long term because that's now AstraZeneca's project. And then we're going back to all of the projects that we were working on before. So I work with whichever Oxford academic needs a new vaccine manufactured. And so we're doing, we've just started some trials against plague, um, which is a very serious disease because if it goes into the lungs and you don't get antibiotic treatment within 24 hours, it's generally fatal. So um, uh, vaccines against plague will still be really useful. Uh, a Nipah virus, which is another really nasty virus that causes outbreaks, and a really interesting and important project tackling gonorrhea, because gonorrhea will soon probably become antibiotic resistant, and that will be a very serious health impact if you can't then use antibiotics to treat gonorrhea. So we're working with um, a team at Oxford to see if we can manufacture a gonorrhea vaccine. Wow, there's a lot to be thinking about that. There's always a lot yeah. to do. <laughs> <laughs> I know, you wonder, you sort of picture you guys like, good news, guys, they've just found out there's a new, there's a new place. <laughs> no, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I mean, there's so many, so many diseases that often they don't affect us. Because, because vaccines work so well, mm. we almost don't realise the huge impact that infectious diseases have for people around the globe. Absolutely. Because we are vaccinated against everything when we're children. Yeah. And so we don't understand how awful infectious diseases are. 50 years ago, people were getting polio, people were getting measles, people were getting mumps, and, and people in our country understood the costs of infectious diseases. Yeah. But not so much anymore because they're either treatable or we're vaccinated against them. Mm. But in, in poorer parts of the world, these cause untold suffering. I mean, malaria kills 400,000 kids a year, I think. Um, and and Adrian Hill at the University of Oxford has just run the first phase two trials with an effective malaria vaccine. So there's huge work being done still now. These haven't gone away, but we've still got a lot to do in the future to start to eradicate, hopefully, some of these other diseases that cause real harm. And if if you had been able to operate your lab back in the time of things like Spanish flu, would, it, would that have been something that would have been worked with a similar style of vaccine? I guess, I guess that's right. So we have made vaccines on the same platform against influenza. Um, and there is definitely scope for better influenza vaccines uh, and there is research being done by by teams looking to improve um, influenza vaccines and see if we can try and get one that then doesn't have to be um, upgraded every year to suit the new strain so there's lots to be done with influenza for sure um, we're also running programs with hiv because an hiv vaccine would be hugely important as well mm. so there's and, and and tb so there are still you know things diseases that we have heard of that we need to tackle and there will be lots of diseases that people in this country haven't really heard of that also cause great harm and if if you could sort of go back to like young you what's the thing that you hope any young Young girls, particularly, sort of getting involved in science. What do you think? What do you hope they take away from what's going on? Well, I always like to say that that science actually is really fun because mm. I think part of the reason that I do it is not just because I think it's important, mm. which I do. 
But for me, it is a real passion. And it's passionate because you work with some really clever people, some really quirky and funny and interesting and difficult, intelligent people. Um, and you get to you get to play, you get to follow your own instincts, you get to invent and be creative and think of solutions to problems. So for me, science is really fun. It's not to say it's not really hard, but the only reason that you can get through it being hard is because it's actually great fun to do and I wouldn't do anything else. Oh, that's a good sell, yeah. I think you're right. It's You forget that there's a lot of fun in that. And I suppose also, do you find it, were you someone that was always quite satisfied by sort of, the idea that there's a almost like a neatness to things. Like if you can just figure out what the equation is, then it's sort of quite tidy. Does yeah, that, and, that is, and that is true, yeah. Part of biology is mess. It's complicated, it's messy. But the idea is that underneath it all, we can figure out where the mess comes from, where the noise comes from, mm. because it comes from an intersection of reaction A with reaction B. We are just chemistry. And I, I find that fascinating. And genetics is hugely complicated, but it does come down to lists of four letters in a code yeah so yeah trying to get to how do we get this phenomenal interesting um and beautiful complexity out of what must intrinsically just be chemicals mm. is 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 wonderfully fascinating to me and and it's a subject that's never going to end so i'll never have to retire no 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 there's still <laughs> lots of scope I don't see you retiring anytime soon. Also, I know you're only three years into working in vaccines, but I think you're quite good at it. So please <laughs> stay doing what you're doing. We loved your we loved your kitchen discos. Ah, thank you for coming. It's it's very bad because now I'm just about to redo my kitchen because I've just moved house and I'm going to put the kitchen in the garage. And Ellie, my daughter, is insisting on a disco button. Hey, good on so you, the, Ellie. There's going to be a disco ball <laughs> in the kitchen, and I'm afraid it's all down to you. Oh well, you know what I was going to say. Please send my best to Ellie because she comes across so beautifully in the book um and I love I can really hear your relationship in all your in all your in all the writing and it's it's really lovely because I think that um there's just I can see that this 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 time in your lives with you as you know just the two of you is going to really form like a keystone for the rest yeah. of your and that's what happened with my mum and I as well you know obviously in a slightly different way but we were on our own from I don't know for about three years and it, it's honestly, we have such a good relationship because of it. I'm like, I, can re I could really sort of pick up on that in what you were writing. So it's really lovely. And, uh, and Minecraft tips are fine, you know. My kids are, <laughs> we've moved on now. We've got something called Friday Night Funkin'. That's taken over oh, our lives. It's like a sort of singing competition. <laughs> I'm sure it'll come. It'll come. <laughs> I, I can't believe your uh, colleague Sarah is a mum of triplets. No, they're, they're growing up now. They're 22, I think. Wow. Um, just finishing it. But they're just finishing at uni, which has been another crazy stressful oh time. Oh, my God. Well, you just don't yeah. really hear many people who are parents of triplets, actually. No. I don't think I know any triplets. I think she regrets parents. having said it because now in every interview, she's always like Sarah Gilbert, scientist, mother of triplets. But um, also it is part of her life too, and, and she writes about that in the book, so that's fair game. Yeah, yeah, I know, I know, I know. Well, yeah, people can ask, but they're not entitled to always know answers, are they? Yeah, <laughs> that's a good yeah. tip, I'll tell you that. <laughs> um, But you manage, you manage to be very public and still having, you know, so everybody knows about your family a bit, but you keep some of it back. You've, you've found a way to walk that line pretty well you're comfortable with yeah that. I mean the discos it's quite intimate coming into your kitchen it's a brave <laughs> thing to do yeah but you know it's funny because I would never ever normally do anything like that but mm. one as soon as we were stuck here in lockdown I felt like <laughs> nothing else really mattered about that and I thought yeah. I just need to connect with people and I felt like there's such a such affection for everybody that's come around honestly it's like 
I, I never cry in my day job, but I kept crying in the discos <laughs> because it was like there was something so sort of sweet about it. It was very yeah. pure. It was daft. Um, but it really meant something. And honestly, if I hadn't had that every Friday, I think I would have gone absolutely insane. I think it just kept me... It gave me an outlet for yeah. a side of me that I felt I didn't really have. So it was, you know, not even just like day job me, just like actual me, me, you know, just yeah. like <laughs> being a bit silly and putting on silly outfits and learning lyrics to Julie Andrews and stuff like that. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. needs a bit of Julie in there. Oh, they do. And I think you, <laughs> when you have your uh, kitchen, it's very easy to just put a little hook somewhere that you can put a disco ball up. Yeah, it's, 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 it's there on the plans. There so you go. Where the disco ball is going. Yeah, so, yeah, 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 yeah. So thank you. And you that. can take it down when you need to, but actually, <laughs> once it starts catching the light, you're not yeah, going to want to take it, it down. Might. oh a lovely woman so warm and i can't wait to see what her kitchen looks like with the disco ball in it um what an amazing thing she's done i wonder if you've been part of that team or any of the teams that have helped to develop the vaccines if you can really take stock. Do you remember how we all felt in March last year where we were on lockdown and there was lots of heaviness in the news and we didn't really know how we were ever, ever, ever going to see our families again or hug our parents or any of those things? And now, look, I know things are still far from plain sailing, but we have come a long way. And we all said it last year, you know, the thing we need is a vaccine. And here we are. And I can give testament to the fact that it does make a massive, massive difference if you've had it and you then catch COVID. So, anywho, thank you, big thank you to Catherine, not to Catherine Green. Big thank you to all my guests. This is the end of another series. I cannot quite believe it. We started with a Spice Girl, we end up with a scientist. You cannot say this is not an eclectic range of women I speak to. And guess what? I've got some amazing people lined up already and a couple have already interviewed for the next series, which will start in about a month. I'm going to go and try and have a bit of summer holiday time and hopefully get back to festivals. It's been laughable, the festivals, for me so far. I've had out of five bookings, I've only been able to do one and the other three. I've lost three to, to COVID and one to um, a, a thunderstorm. But I'm really hoping that I get back out and start singing for you all again soon. And in the meantime, thank you so much. Uh, You'll be pleased to hear that the Lego situation here has remained pretty stable. I'm pretty impressed. Uh, Wish me luck for the rest of the day. We're not quite out of the woods yet with our quarantine here. We've got one more day to go. And then we are free to roam the world just like we used to. Mickey, you looking forward to going out and about and going to the park again and all that kind of thing? Uh, Yeah, look at that little guy. These Lego men are so brilliant. I do love Lego. Thank you so much. I'm going to love you and leave you now and help Mickey make some more Lego men. Yes, Mickey? Something's happened. Oh, what happened? Nothing bad. Nothing bad. All right. Lots of love. Thank you so much. See you. Mickey, can you say thank you so much? Mickey, say thank you. Thank you.
This is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ, the official ETF of the NCAA. The future isn't scary, not realizing its potential, however, could be. Just like on the recruiting trail, I've seen potential come in many forms as a coach. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.